Thanks for listening to from Ferndafi Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. We uh, have a discussion today, firstly regarding whether you can click on a website, on a link or whatever, and whether that then constitutes an agreement that was concluded, firstly, and then we'll deal with a couple of other types of uh, agreements and legal documents like a will and answer the question as to what the formality requirements are for those types of legal documents to be valid and enforceable. And then uh, secondly, I'll be chatting to Rejo Marakala about a sad uh, case, a drowning of a boy uh, in the Groot Mariku River floods back in 2010. And there was a court case that now dealt with the question as to whether the owner is liable for the death of that uh, boy that, that, that drowned. So yeah, please uh, stay uh, tuned for those two, what I think are very interesting discussions. These days, I think it's safe to say that millions of agreements are concluded online by just clicking and uh, entering your details uh, online. But what is actually the legal uh, position here in South Africa in respect of agreements concluded online or electronically? My name is uh, Volker Kruger from Verfehlendafi Tönis. You're listening to Waterberg Stereo. I asked Alicia Kuzak from our department to um, have a look at this uh, question. So, Alicia, uh, what do you think? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I think maybe as a starting point for the discussion, it may be useful to refer to uh, the relevant piece of legislation just to give an outline of what it is. So in South Africa, we have what we call the Electronic Communications and Transaction Act. This is Act 25 of 2002. So what this act essentially attempts to do is not to give new validity requirements for electronic agreements, but really to provide a sense of certainty regarding electronic agreements. You know, when can we conclude them? How can we conclude them? What do they look like? And things like that. So I think maybe a good example of electronic agreements that people conclude on a very regular basis are those terms and conditions agreements, right? So either you go to a website and you want to download a piece of software and a terms and conditions block pops up and it says click here to agree. And what happens though is very, very few people read those terms and conditions. Nobody actually clicks on the hyperlink and reads the 50 pages of terms and conditions that Microsoft has created. We just click the little box and we move on, download the software and we have no problem. So I think in those circumstances, the question often arises like, is this a valid contract? Because I think very few people even think of it as a contract, but essentially that is what it is. You are concluding an agreement. So what the ECTA says in this regard is that just because information is contained in a data message, such as a website, doesn't mean it doesn't have legal um, effect. And even if information is merely referred to in a data message, it still has legal effect. So um, when we look at these little boxes, either it will have a read more option and all the terms and conditions will pop up, or there's a high Hyperlink. You have to click on the hyperlink, go to another site, and then you can find the terms and conditions. 
So the question with these agreements are, why do we consider them to be valid, right? So as I said, the ECTA doesn't change the validity requirements for contracts. Those requirements remain the same. There are common law validity requirements, um, and there are five of them. So we generally refer to capacity, legality, consensus, possibility and certainty of performance, and formalities. So here we're talking about the formality of the contract. So we accept that the parties are old enough to conclude the contract. We accept that the contract is legal. We accept that both parties want to conclude the contract and we accept that the, the contract is legally possible to be performed. So most contracts that we deal with actually don't have formality requirements. You can conclude most contracts verbally. You can conclude them, you know, however you want. It's not necessary for the parties to always sign the agreement. And that's generally the case with these types of terms and condition contracts, right? They don't have any requirements pertaining to that the contract be in writing or that the contract be signed. So when you click that little box, um, you are agreeing to the terms and conditions. That is as good as putting your signature on the contract. And many people argue that this is the case or that these instances are similar to what we refer to as uh, the ticket cases, right? So in South African law, we have had these cases where the one of the most famous examples is the, I believe it's the King's Car Park case. So a person went to a car park and they pressed the little button, they got the ticket and they parked their car. When they came back, the car was gone. Someone had stolen the car. So then they wanted to hold the car park liable for the vehicle that had been stolen. And the car park just said, listen, on the ticket, it says that uh, the owner parks the car here at their own risk. And the court had to decide whether they could do that, whether that was um, a valid notice that was given to the person. Um, and when deciding this case, they laid down three principles. So the first is, did the person know that there was writing or printing, right? The second is, did the person know that the writing or printing pertains to them? And if your answer to either of those is no, the third question is, did the car park or whoever the relevant party is do everything reasonably possible to give the person notice of the writing, right? So if you look at these terms on condition agreements, you go onto a website, and it pops up. So you're aware that there is writing. The website generally clearly informs you that this writing are terms and conditions which pertains to the software that you want to download. And by ticking that little box, you are saying that you are aware of the writing, you're aware that the writing pertains to you and that you nonetheless agree to go forth um, with the agreement, with the contract. So these types of agreements are what are called click wrap agreements, right? Because what you do is you physically click a little box to agree to the terms of the, um, well, generally it's software usage, but it can be anything. Sometimes we do it to agree to cookies on a website, whatever the case may be. 
Another type of electronic agreement that you might find is what we call a web wrap agreement. So unlike click wrap agreements, uh, these agreements do not require that the browser or the user um, actually perform an action. They don't actually click a box. The person's consent to the terms and conditions is inferred from the fact that they proceed to download the software, right? So where with click wrap agreements, we have expressed consent to the terms and conditions. Web wrap agreements are more implied consent to the terms and conditions. But they are both subject to those ticket case principles. Um, and they are actually considered to be valid agreements in South Africa. I think there are also a couple of cases dealing with amusement parks, which I guess yes. are also comparable, no? where uh, anybody going for example a joyride in the amusement park who was injured during an accident even if there might have been uh, negligence on the side of the owners or the operators of the amusement park if that injured person walked past a clear sign at the entrance which excludes liability which confirms that you are using the facilities at the amusement park at your own risk then I think in those cases, the court also said that you basically tacitly or uh, by implication agreed to the terms of the using of the facility. So it's basically also a case of an agreement being concluded between the owners or the operators and the, the clients uh, using those facilities. Now, would you agree? I, I think that's also another example. Yeah, that's 100% correct. That is the other case that is often referred to. It's actually the Durban's Water Wonderland case. Um, and in that case, it was a mother and her child. I can't believe if it, I can't remember if it was a little boy or girl, but they were injured in the water park. And then the court just referred to the fact, like, as you'll even see at Gold Reef City, when you stand in the queue, there's a massive sign that says you enter these pre premises on your own risk. Um, and the same terms and conditions are generally contained on the ticket that you receive. And the court said that they um, had seen there was writing. Um, they should, were aware that this writing was applicable to them going into the water park. So by entering uh, the water park, they had agreed to the terms and conditions um, as displayed on those boards and the tickets. Um, what is interesting, however, with the electronic agreements is that they can be subject to either the consumer clauses that are contained in the ECTA or the Consumer Protection Act. So let's say we all just blindly agree to the terms and conditions of whatever company, right? And belatedly, we realize that there are some very unfair terms or terms in the contract that contradict the Consumer Protection Act or the ECTA. You can um, actually fight those specific clauses uh, with use of the CPA. So it's not that you can completely to your detriment blindly agree to any terms. The terms do still have to be fair to a certain extent. I think that case that you referred to was also decided before the Consumer Protection Act came into operation. No? So I guess one would obviously just have to take that into consideration when uh, any new uh, facts might arise where similar legal principles are, are relevant. But okay, let's maybe um, move on. So, so Alicia, am I right in saying that as a general rule, if you click 
uh, and accept the terms or even if you tacitly sort of proceed with using the website where there's a clear indication of the terms, etc., then there's a, a binding agreement created that you accept those terms uh, and then the contract is indeed enforceable, except if there are specific formality requirements for that agreement. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that is about the essence of it. So let's take, for example, um, we could maybe refer to some agreements that we cannot conclude in this way, right? So the ECTA contains two provisions, one that relates to writing and one that relates to signatures. So the ECTA has told us that if there is a requirement that a document or information must be in writing. This requirement can be met even if um, the information is contained in a data message, right? So that would mean, say, for example, I email certain information to someone else. That information is then contained in a data message. And then Section 13 of the ECTA says that um, where the law requires that um, an agreement must be signed, right, that there must be a signature on the agreement. But it doesn't state what type of signature must be on the agreement. Only an advanced electronic signature will suffice. So the ECTA then later provides a bunch of requirements for an advanced electronic signature, but the essence thereof is that these aren't just your normal electronic signatures that you put on the bottom of your email, for example, or that you scan in, right? Those are just normal electronic signatures. So if we go and we look at, for example, the um, Wills Act, so the World Act clearly stipulates that in order for a world to be valid, it must be in writing, it must be signed um, by the testator or testatrix and then two competent witnesses, as far as I recall. So um, that means that the law has given very clear formality requirements for these types of contracts. And the ECTA explicitly provides that it is not applicable to wills. So therefore, we cannot conclude wills electronically. These, um, while they may be typed, it is permitted for a will to be typed, it then subsequently has to be printed and signed by the testator or testatrix and two witnesses. A video recording of uh, basically a, a will, if you record a video where you explain in the video what you want to happen after you've passed away, would that be valid and enforceable? Well, I don't think that that would comply with the requirement of a world to be in writing. So, um, as you've, yeah. So as you've said, um, let's say that would qualify as a data message. We can, um, to that extent, agree because the ECTA also um, provides for a voice recording to qualify as a data message. So we can agree that that's a data message and that uh, under certain circumstances, data messages can qualify as writing. But unfortunately, because this specific clause of the ECTA, ECTA is not applicable to the Wills Act, we can't use that type of will. So, in my opinion, the ECTA is a bit outdated. So, if we look, for example, the um, 
ECTA came out, if you can say it like that, in 2002, right? So um, even though it feels like technology, or at least to me, it feels like technology has been there my entire life. But if you go back and look, Skype was only released in 2003. WhatsApp was released in 2009. And Microsoft Teams was only released in 2017. So I think at the time of writing this act, they couldn't reasonably foresee what the possibilities of technology technology were going to be. Because in my opinion, let's take a wall. The requirements are that it must be signed and there must be two witnesses. So theoretically to me, if we go on Teams, I go on Teams, I get two other people to join the Teams meeting. I record the meeting. In the meeting, I tell these people exactly what I want to be done. Or I could even go a step further. I could open Microsoft Word, I share my screen with them, and I start typing out my wall. I tell them this is exactly what I want to be in my wall. Why shouldn't they be... Um, valid witnesses to that type of will. I could save that video recording, I could place it on the cloud, and in future that could be used in order to divide my estate. Yeah, I guess that's a valid argument. Maybe that will come in the future. Um, a contract for the sale of movables. Let's say you order a television online, you order a cell phone online, you, you order shoes online. Uh, would that be valid? Yeah, so this is another example of agreements that do not have formality requirements. We obviously buy and sell immovable things uh, movable things, excuse me, all the time. We go on to take a lot. We do it on um, Facebook. We do it all the time. Um, and the reason why we're allowed to do that is because the law doesn't explicitly tell us what these type of agreements must look like. All the law says is that there must be um, a thing that you are going to sell. You must know for how much it will be sold. The parties must agree on that. And they must transfer of this thing must take place. So that is easily done over the internet but when it for example comes to immovable property it's not as clear cut because in those circumstances we again have legislation which clearly says to us that the agreement to sell immovable property so that could be a house a land anything like that it must be in writing and it must be signed by the parties. And again, the ECTA says to us that the provisions of writing and signature are not applicable to the Alienation of Land Act. So if you you cannot say via email, conclude an agreement to sell a house or to sell land. It has to be a document that has been printed and signed physically by both parties in order to be valid. Do there have to be witnesses for sale of land agreement? No. So they do not, um, unlike with wills, there don't have to be any witnesses um, to a sale of land agreement. What is, however, interesting with sale of lands, or at least I think so, is that the Alienation of Land Act doesn't specifically speak to the variation of a um, sale of land agreement, right? So because only the provisions of the Alienation of Land Act are excluded from the ECTA, but the Alienation of Land Act doesn't speak to the variation of the agreement, it is possible to vary uh, or to amend uh, an agreement for the sale of land um, electronically. But I think in nine out of 10 cases, there would be a clause in the written sale agreement which 
stipulates that any amendments must be in writing and signed by both agree by both parties. No? So if that clause is contained in the uh, set of land agreement, then you would have to comply with those formality requirements. But but I understand your argument. If there's no such clause, then uh, yeah, an, an oral amendment might be uh, enforceable. What about lease agreements? Do they have to be in writing? Do they have to be signed? Could they therefore be concluded electronically? So currently we do not have a requirement in the South African law that lease agreements have to be in writing. As far as I'm aware, there is um, the possibility of that being a formality in the future, but currently it's not. So it is very possible for you to conclude a verbal agreement, a verbal lease agreement. Um, something that people should, however, take into consideration is that verbal agreements are very difficult to prove because it becomes a he said, she said story especially if there aren't any witnesses to the agreement having taken place. So um, what the ECTA also provides is that um, where there is an expression of intent or another statement that is contained in a data message, that also has legal force. So let's say you're discussing a lease agreement with someone and you conclude all the terms and conditions there are verbally. What might be useful is to thereafter just send a WhatsApp to that person or an email, anything like that, and just restate the terms of the agreement and have them agree to it. And it can be very simple. You can send them an SMS or WhatsApp or whatever you wish, which just says, listen, I just want to confirm that I will be renting this property at this address from this date for so many months at this amount of money per month. And then you at least have a statement that has legal force should there ever be a dispute between you and the other party. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so in all those cases where there are no formality requirements, such as a lease agreement, such as sale of movables, such as partnership agreements, such as an acknowledgement of debt, uh, such as a loan agreement, in all those cases, um, you can actually conclude an oral agreement or actually even by implication, without saying anything, conclude an agreement. But to prove the terms of uh, that agreement apart from the existence, it's obviously much better to have something in writing. As uh, Alicia has uh, said, even if it's a WhatsApp or an email or whatever, that's uh, better than nothing because if there's ever a dispute or someone who denies the fact that there is such an agreement, then at least you can use those uh, uh, written um, uh, versions of, of the terms to prove the, the agreement or even better get an attorney to draft a proper lease agreement, a proper partnership agreement, a proper acknowledgement of debt, uh, sale of movables or loan agreement, so that there's clarity on the terms, uh, which you can then enforce with that uh, written agreement more easily. And also, in my experience, it often helps to prevent misunderstandings. So the attorney can then help you to discuss all the terms that need to be discussed, which maybe uh, the parties wouldn't think of when they conclude the agreement. So uh, I think the uh, prevention is better than cure, um, and a uh, rule also applies in those cases. So, yeah, even though those agreements might be valid and enforceable, rather get the stuff in writing. Okay, thanks, uh, Alicia. I think that uh, gives us a good idea. Anything else that you want to add? 
Uh, no, not specifically. I just think, as you said, what people should bear in mind, even where the law doesn't specifically require that certain formalities must be complied with, um, the parties are always free to do so. The parties can always agree that they want their agreement to comply with certain formality requirements before it is valid. And in those circumstances, if the parties, for example, agree that a, let's say, a sale of uh, movable property if they agree that such an ag uh, agreement must be in writing and it must be signed, um, the provisions of the ECTA can be applicable to those agreements. So it will be, for example, possible to conclude those types of agreements uh, via email and sign it, you know, with your normal email signature. That will be sufficient proof um, of it. And I think that should also be remembered when certain formality requirements are made, such as that cancellation must take place via writing. So that is a common clause that we put into contracts. Um, and then usually our intention is that the party should, you know, sign on a piece of paper that they've or cancel the agreement. But there was a case of spring forest trading where the court actually said that where one party had sent an email to another in terms of which they canceled the agreement and he put his name on the bottom of the email as a signature, that was a valid um, um, cancellation. They considered it to be signed and in writing. So, yeah, I think that yeah. is also something to remember. Yeah, interesting. Thank you, Alicia. My name is Falker Kruger. I've got Rehu Marakala here on the line today. We're going to talk about the very sad uh, case, uh, a little boy that uh, drowned in the Mariko Mariku River floods um, some time ago. Um, and yeah, that led to a court case against the owner of the chalet, I think, where they were staying. Um, please uh, explain to us what the facts in this case uh, were, uh, uh, Rijo. Thank you. Um, and to all the listeners, um, indeed, uh, Volker, this is a very um, sad event um, that transpired sometime in 2010. Um, and judgment uh, was only delivered in respect of the facts of the matter um, and liability um, sometime last month. Now, what appeared to have been a summer vacation uh, for the black family, um, they went uh, to a lodge in in the outskirts um, here in the Northwest province, they by Khrut Marigo. Um, the lodge was advertised and the black family um, uh, were enticed by the chalets that were offered therein, and most in particular the chalet that was close to the Khrut Marigo River, that was built close to the Khrut Marigo River. Um, as they were staying in that farm, um, on, on that specific night, um, the river, um, there was heavy rain, and then the Khrut Marigo River bank uh, bursted um, and flooded their chalet. Um, they tried to escape, and they were fortunate enough to escape, but the little boy, um, who was their um, last born, um, could not make it um, due to the water. Um, now, the family, they had scrambled to escape, you know, um, but their young boy was unfortunately swept away, and his remains were found the next morning. Um, and the matter of, uh, for them, um, they then proceeded with... Um, 
litigation against the owners of the the lodge or the the chalet. That is the facts of the matter. And when the matter was brought before the court, um, both the owner of the property um, of the lodge and the plaintiff, they both agreed to say that, to ask the court to say that um, perhaps let's first start to establish as to whether the facts and the circumstances of the matter, uh, indeed there is liability and separate that with the quantum, the amount of money that's supposed to be paid. Now, as, as a normal principle in, in, in our law, uh, to simply put it, when a court and or parties come to that conclusion, Obviously, the court will then consider as to whether there is uh, justifying facts that um, establish liability. Now, if the court uh, finds that um, there was no liability, there was warning signs that were displayed, you know, disclaimer notices, and they were warned that um, this particular chalet is built within a 100-year flood um, um, area, um, the court, if they decide that they were warned, um, obviously the issue of quantum the issue of how much you are supposed to pay falls out because they found not in their favor. But if the court agrees that there was liability on on behalf on, on the part of the chalet owner or the lodge owner, then the court will obviously then postpone the issue of how much should be paid at a later stage. So then the court had to discuss uh, those particular circumstances. All right. So this judgment deals with the merits uh, only. Am I, am I right? That is correct. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very curious, and I think the listeners are also very curious to, to find out what the court found. Did the court find that the owner was liable? Could he be uh, held liable for the damages suffered because of the drowning? <clears throat> yes, uh, the Mafeking High Court then had to to establish whether the, the owner um, was, was negligent in constructing the chalet Within, a, within the 100-year flood line and whether he failed to take preventative pre 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 uh, steps um, and whether the flood has been a freak of nature. In other words, was it really foreseeable? Um, is this an act that can be, is, is this an act of God? Is this an act of nature that is beyond the control of a large owner? Um, and whether the, whether the, 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 the customers, the black family, um, had waived their right uh, to sue due to the exempt, exemption notices that were put up uh, to say that, you know what, um, be careful when entering these premises, you know, the owner won't be liable in case of uh, any damages that will be suffered and so forth. So the court had to uh, find out as to taking into consideration the circumstances of the case as to whether or not um, they'll find against the, uh, the owner. And just to summarily put it, um, the, the court did indeed find against the, the, the owner in that he was negligent. But in cases such as this, uh, the court listened to the evidence of the mother um, because the whole family had, after the incident transpired, they all moved to Australia um, because it was an unfortunate incident for them and they could no longer, you know, um, bear uh, that relationship in being in South Africa. And the court indeed take took that particular um, into account. Now, on the part of the owner, there was the lady who was the administrator. Uh, she she testified to say that there were notices that were put up and so forth. But however, the mother of the uh, the young black, um, this, the, the little boy who was swept by the flood, 
uh, testified to the fact that we are never showed these signs, you know. And the court then, on on particular on the indemnity uh, signs that were put up, the court say that, listen here, the mere fact of someone putting disclaimer notices and warning signs, it does not necessarily mean that an owner will not be held to be liable. You must take certain measures, you as the owner of the particular property, to alert uh, your customers uh, to show them that these these signs are there and to also caution them to say that this is what will transpire. So in other words, the mere visibility and the mere fact that there are signs that are put up does not necessarily mean that an ordinary person will take those signs and then make their own conclusion. You are the owner of the property. You are supposed to take preventative steps to enlighten that particular person and to inform them that, listen here, these are the consequences that might uh, arise. And obviously, you would agree with me, Volker, if one was to say that, you might start to wonder and say that, you know what, I'm cancelling my booking. But however, the court then said that, but you have to alert a person. Um, alert them to these particular consequences which might follow, and they'll make a decision based on that. Um, there was further testimony that was given by a hydrologist. Now, basically, they're specializing in, you know, um, how hydrology, the water and riverbanks and so forth. Now, this expert led evidence to explain how a hundred uh, flood line means and also dismissed the whole concept of saying that a hundred year flood line only happens once a year. And he did testify to the fact that it can actually happen twice a year or even more than that. And the chances of it happening is between five to six percent out of a hundred. And, and also evidence was also led by the defendant to the fact that when he bought the farm, he also went to the municipality. The mere fact that he went to the municipality and kept on inquiring whether this particular area or this particular farm had experienced any floods and so forth and so forth, um, he just testified to the fact that the municipality just told them that there was no problem there. And also the engineers who were building the, the, the chalets told them that, uh, listen, we don't think that will be necessary and so forth. And the court then took that particular evidence into account to say that, but if the owner was asking these particular questions, wasn't they more required of him? Because he would have not necessarily accepted a particular municipality saying that, um, listen here, there haven't been any flood lines that were arising here and so forth and so forth. You won't have any problems and so forth. As a property owner, knowing that you're going to make uh, these chalets open for public, you should have taken certain further steps to ensure their safety and security. Now, Obviously, the court came to a conclusion after all the evidence was led um, and accepted the expect's uh, evidence and his, uh, the, the expect's evidence by the owner was not contradicted in any in any event. Uh, and the court accepted that evidence as to assist them into coming into a conclusion. And therefore, after, after all the evidence was led, uh, there was a lot of uh, testimonies that was given, um, particularly in regard to the circumstances which transpired therein. And the court then thereafter concluded that um, the owner was indeed negligent um, and he had a, a particular legal duty, not only to, to himself, but also extending to some of the staff who are employed uh, at the, the particular lodge and also to customers, the public, you know, people that make a booking wanting a peace of mind. You have that um, oral, um, a legal duty. And also the court uh, quite significantly out of out of their own accord uh, made a passing remark to say that it, it will not necessarily be a legal duty only, but a moral obligation 
um, to to ensure that the people who visit um, your 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 lodge, uh, their safety is of the utmost importance. And it's not only a profit uh, machinery, but you should take certain preventative uh, measures to ensure that um, their safety is of paramount importance. And thereafter, that's when the court say that, um, listen here, we're going to find you to be negligent in that regard. And there's more that should have been done. Do they give the wording of those signs that were put up? Do you know maybe what they, they, they stipulated? Um, not necessarily. Um, but what, what the judgment discusses, it doesn't necessarily put out uh, the exact wording of the signs. Um, this was a mere testimony on behalf by the, the lady who was doing the administration that invited, uh, that invited, normally when you visit a lodge, you know, there'll be someone that actually takes you to the chalets and shows you, okay, this is the passage where you can walk, this is where the swimming pools are, and so forth and so forth. The court did receive the evidence of the particular disclaimer notices, but what actually transpired, what interestingly uh, transpired was that, um, the testimony of uh, Mrs. Black was to say that some of these signs were actually not there. So she was of the opinion that some of these signs were actually put up after the event. And the court also, I think uh, the court came to a conclusion to actually say that, but we find this very dubious, that an event transpired, these signs, in other words, they were not there, but somehow these signs were there and they were at a very close close proximity, close to where the chalet was situated. And Mrs. Black uh, did testify and her evidence was not contradicted in any event uh, by the owner to say to the fact that these signs were actually put up after the event. Okay. Because, yeah, there were a number of court cases over the years. We actually discussed uh, one or two of them the other day in another program where even if the owner or the operator of something was negligent, if the signs were clear and uh, uh, visible and the plaintiff saw them or must have seen them, then it's accepted in terms of our law, I believe, that the plaintiff contracted out of uh, any potential claim. So even if you manage to prove that the owner was, for example, negligent, then you can't succeed with a claim if you uh, walk past that sign which clearly says that you're using the premises uh, at your own risk and the owner is not liable. So even if you can prove negligence, then you're not going to succeed. But it sounds to me like in this case, those signs were either accepted by the court were not there or not good enough or whatever. So so um, the, the, the owner couldn't rely on that. And then based on the negligence, I guess the court found that he didn't take uh, all the steps that needed to be taken uh, as a reasonable person would have done. And that's why um, the the the, the uh, defence was not successful, and, and the plaintiff on the merits uh, succeeded with the claim. Is that right? Most definitely. Um, what usually transpired is that uh, I think um, for most property owners um, or uh, business owners, when they put these uh, disclaimer notices or exemption notices, um, they they usually we must weigh against uh, a right of a particular individual when they suffer damages or they suffer loss to be able to access courts. Um, that's what our constitution guarantees, for someone to get a readdress of a particular situation or event that transpired for the loss that they suffered. Now, an exemption notices our courts on various cases um, have always held that there should be an, an issue of fairness and also justice and reasonableness um, with regards to an exemption notices, particularly relating to the uh, the 
circumstances of a matter. So if we give any owner-operator of a holiday resort some advice, I guess, uh, firstly, there must be clear signs and they must clearly communicate what the risks and the dangers are. And then yes. preferably um, any guest should also sign something, no? sign an indemnity, uh, which yes. is also clearly uh, marked as an indemnity. So you can't just have a standard form with a hidden indemnity. The indemnity yes. must be clearly indicated uh, so that uh, there can't be any misrepresentation. The guest can't argue that he wasn't uh, aware of signing an indemnity. So, yes. uh, yeah, would you agree with that advice or what uh, other advice could one uh, give? Uh, I guess the other advice is not to build within the 100-year floodline. No? Yes, uh, yes. That, that I think also made a big difference in this case. Yes, yes. Indeed, that, that is most definitely tr uh, true. Um, if we can just um, take this particular judgment into account and reverse it, um, if the owner was able to prove, as, as you had said, to say that, you know what, I had warned these particular individuals, these customers, the black family, I had warned them of the dangers of actually visiting this particular chalet. And I, I, I also gave them certain forms to fill in, indemnity forms, and they accepted. We explained the nature and also the consequences of what will happen um, thereafter. And I also um, took them on a small excursion for like uh, 10 minutes or five minutes and so forth around where the disclaimer or exemption notices are. And they were fully aware. And, and I explained to them in a language that they were, they were able to understand. And they fully agreed to, 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 to occupy um, the particular resident or chalet after having received all the, 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 the advice um, from, from us. Sure. Basically, the court was saying that an, an owner of a, of, of a lodge or or resort and so forth has to has to show more steps being taken, and those are reasonable steps to show more, not just the mere uh, visibility of those signs, but um, do also caution your customers, show them the notices, you know. Now, the option is, of course, and, and the sponsors of this program, the Vetten de Villiers, Brokers and Rustmuk, will, will like me saying this is, is to take out insurance no? uh, so that you have that cover for yes. in case uh, you are liable for something like uh, that. I think typically insurance cover of this nature is not that expensive. So that's another option that uh, any owner of a resort can, um, can consider. All right. Thank you, uh, Rico. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.